My name is David Nashfolger. I'm a lawyer in the Labor and Employment Department at Kane Lamar LLP in Montreal. As a law student, I had to choose a practice area, a field of specialization in which I could develop a particular expertise and devote my career to furthering. I found business immigration and global mobility, an area that I love. But I didn't just join Kane, as we like to call it, to be an immigration lawyer. I chose Kane because it's a firm that encouraged me to focus on personal as much as professional development, understanding that varied interests, including most recently recording podcasts, would help me explore ways in which the law intersects with issues that affect us all. And so that is how I came to record the second edition of a series of Kane Lamar podcasts dedicated to taking conversations beyond the law. Today, our attitude towards refugees, with Dr. Marina Sharp, Trudeau scholar, author of The Regional Law of Refugee Protection in Africa, published by Oxford University Press, and a visiting fellow at McGill University's Center for Human Rights and Legal Pluralism. Marina, what do you think the biggest misconception about refugees today is? I think the biggest misconception is that the majority of refugees come to the West or the developed world. I think in the West, people think that the vast majority of refugees are coming to us, coming to our countries. Uh, in fact, that's not even close to being the case. The vast majority of refugees remain in the developing world, usually fleeing to the country right next door, to a geographically contiguous country, so a country um, that shares a land border with their country of origin. Uh, and I think if people knew that, um, they might be they might be less hostile to refugees. Do you think people generally are hostile to refugees? I do, yeah. I think I think in in the West in particular, or generally, or everywhere in the world. I think it's a global problem. Um, I think, yeah, I think there's xenophobia um, and hostility towards refugees all over the world, whether it be in Africa and Asia and North America and Europe. Why do you think that is? I think people feel threatened. I think um, in contexts of, of scarcity, perhaps the economy is not doing that well. People feel like this society doesn't even have enough to provide for the people who are from here. Um, how could we possibly provide for outsiders? Um, I, I think it's it's xenophobia largely driven by scarcity and a fear that there's not enough to go around. But do you think some of what you say also applies to, and maybe you can, maybe I think this is sort of, maybe I can turn this into a question and help me understand the differences between different types of of, of migrants or different types of immigration. Um, so for example, the, the fear and the negative reactions that people in the West tend to have towards refugees, is this similar to what people have or the, the feelings people engender towards immigrants in general, or is there is there a difference? I think there's a difference. Um, well, first of all, I should I should qualify it a little bit. Um, you know, when I say that I think there's hostility to refugees all over the world, I don't think everyone all over the world or even necessarily the vast majority of people are hostile to refugees. I think in certain, um, in, in certain countries and indeed in every country, there will be se- segments of the population who are very sympathetic to refugees and who, are, who take a very welcoming and, and an open approach and who want to welcome refugees and, and assist them when they arrive. Um, so maybe, you know, it would be important to just make that clarification. Um, but you were asking about how people feel versus immigrants, uh, how people feel towards immigrants versus how they feel towards other form of other forms of migrants. Perhaps you meant irregular migrants. Um, I think people are probably 
more hostile to irregular migrants because there's this idea of queue jumping. With immigrants, those are typically people who've gone through formal procedures and who have waited their turn for a lack of uh, a lack of a better way of putting it um, and who have used established migration pathways or migration channels with irregular migrants there's this idea that they're they're perhaps abusing the system or not waiting their turn so I think it's it's it it provokes a different kind of sentiment and I think um, people are less understanding of of migrants who move irregularly and would refugees be considered irregular migrants Yes and no. Um, sometimes refugees have to use irregular means of entry as a result of their their factual circumstances. This, so, for example, um, refugees often flee without any pre-planning. They, they flee because of an emergency. Uh, so, for example, they could feel threatened um, by, by a gang or a member of the government. Um, or there could be a natural disaster or conflict can break out. Basically something happens with no warning and a person or a family decides that they must flee immediately. Um, so in that sense, they might have no choice but to use an irregular means of, en of entering the asylum state because they simply didn't have time to obtain a visa or otherwise comply with whatever uh, formal requirements for entering that country may be in place. I wouldn't say that that makes them an irregular migrant as such. And in fact, the Refugee Convention contains a provision that very explicitly says refugees should not and may not be penalized because of their unlawful or irreg irregular entry into the host country. So refugee law uh, recognizes that people may be forced to use irregular means of travel but they shouldn't be penalized for that. So I would say that refugee law actually takes refugees outside of, of this idea of irregular migration explicitly and, and, and legally. But do you think most people, I mean, probably without the, the sort of complex or textured understanding that you have, do you think most people probably view refugees as irregular migrants? I don't, I don't think that most people think in terms of really irregular or irregular migrants. I don't think people, most people would really make that distinction. Um, I think people think about refugees because they know the word, they're familiar with the category. They might also have other categories into which they, they would classify certain migrants. For example, people who come for a job, um, international students. I think those are the types of categories people would naturally divide different types of migrants into. I think I think the irregular versus irregular kind of dichotomy is actually something that would be more in the, the domain of policymakers and professionals. What's the difference between refugees and asylum seekers in everyday terms? To answer that question, I have to tell you what a refugee is and what an asylum seeker is. And I can't really answer the question of what is a refugee in everyday terms because Refugee, by definition, is a technical legal term. So to my mind, it can only, I can only give you a technical legal answer to that question. So a refugee is someone with a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of his or her race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, or political opinion. So it's someone who fears persecution on the basis of his or her membership in a particular category or group of persons. Do they have to necessarily fear for their life? 
No, they ha- they, no, they just have to have a, a, a well-founded fear of, of being persecuted. And a well, there's a well-founded fear of being persecuted usually means some type of evidence that you ha- that there have been attempts to sort of, for lack of a better word, persecute you or, or, or make your life difficult before. Yes, so it's not required. Um, refugee status doesn't serve to remedy past harm. It serves only to protect someone from future harm. So no past harm is required for refugee status. However, past harm is evidence that someone is a refugee. So in that sense, um, it would assist someone's claim from an evidentiary perspective if they had already experienced harm on the basis of, say, for example, their political opinion. Um, But that harm would not be required. It would simply bolster Uh, from an evidentiary and credibility perspective, their claim. Um, So that's what a refugee is. And and maybe we could discuss that a little bit more later. But to respond to your question and distinguish a refugee from an asylum seeker, an asylum seeker, asylum seeker is more um, a a procedural term. um, Because procedurally, what it means to be an asylum seeker is that You've applied for refugee status, but you have not yet received the result of your application. So you're awaiting the decision. Um, that's that's really all it means, because refugee status is is declarative. So when someone is a, is recognized as a refugee, that recognition doesn't constitute their refugee status. It doesn't make them a refugee. It simply formally and legally recognizes a pre-existing factual scenario, which is that that person is a refugee. So is that someone who we'd call, for example, a convention refugee? The term convention refugee goes back to the definition I gave a moment ago. Someone is a refugee the moment they meet that convention definition. So the moment, the, the, as a matter of fact, that they meet that definition, that's when they are a refugee. When, they're, when they become an asylum seeker, when they apply for refugee status, and when their refugee status is recognized, um, that means that the law has recognized uh, legally a pre-existing factual and legal scenario. So you can have a situation where someone meets the definition of refugee as you defined it technically, but hasn't necessarily been awarded or granted, or in fact could have been denied refugee status in another state. Yeah. So if someone if someone um, is a refugee, then they're both a refugee and an asylum seeker because at the same time. So so. It's a, that's why it was a bit complicated to answer your question, because you asked, what is the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker? The question presupposes that that those are two different things, when in fact a person can be both and is often both a refugee and an asylum seeker at the same time. They're a refugee when they become a refugee factually, and then they're an asylum seeker um, procedurally once they lodge their claim for refugee status. If if someone, fear, if someone flees... Um their country of origin because of war or fighting or um, other types of disaster um, and flees like you say and I think like many of us many of us understand flees to the you know the, the the closest safest place that they could be so very often let's say having crossed the four border on foot uh, to a neighboring country how would you explain or how would you best describe the, the the experiences and the very different journeys of someone who um, who is able to 
save themselves by crossing a land border relatively close to where they live and remaining in a neighboring country where life is pretty much, where the standard of living is pretty much more or less similar to what they had experienced to date versus someone who who is able to leave or somehow flee uh, prosecution, persecution or catastrophe abroad and ends up in a place like Canada. So very often the, the difference between those two people will be, um, well, a couple of things. It'll be resources, uh, money often. Um, so to flee f- to a place like Canada, f- you know, if you're coming from the developing world, be it Latin America, Africa, Asia, um, to get to Canada, first of all, you have to take a plane. So it's expensive. And the vast majority of people will not be able to afford that plane ticket. So the refugee who makes their way to Canada is is typically someone who is richer than the refugee who just flees next door. Um, another difference will be the nature of the the crisis that provoked flight, because to flee to Canada, for example, would require require advanced planning. Because to get on a plane to Canada, in most cases, for most people, requires visa. That visa must be applied for in the country of origin, usually months bef- because of processing times, months before the date of the intended journey. So there's a lot of, of pre-planning involved. So if you have the time to do that pre-planning, to go to, you know, to go to the Canadian Embassy or High Commission and apply for that visa two months, say, before you want to travel, it means that the thing that you're fleeing from isn't posing any imminent risk. Um, someone who flees across the border, chances are they they fl- they fled with less notice. The risk was much more imminent. Um, so they were literally running for their lives, um, and they had to leave immediately. And so they went next door over the border because it was the o- it would be the only country that they can access on such short notice. So really, I would say to sum up, there's two. There would be two main distinctions between those different kind of Uh, type of refugee that you posited. One would be resources, money, and the other would be um, the nature of the threat and the the imminency of the risk. People, I think, some people at least have an impression that, um, that, you know, they see, for example, that Germany, if I'm not mistaken, recently accepted approximately 1,000, or sorry, 1 million refugees from the conflict in Syria or elsewhere in the region. Canada, uh, appeared to have been very generous, at least in the news um, and in the way uh, the country was described by others, also when the Syrian refugee crisis was at its peak. Do you think that developing countries who, um, who it seems from what you say, are often both the source and the refuge um, for people who are fleeing persecution and seeking somewhere to go, do you think developing countries don't get nearly enough credit? Um, and that I mean when I use the word credit, I guess I, I mean, you know, credit in terms of positive um, positive reflection in the media. But obviously, one can also ask whether they get enough resources. But beginning first with credit, do you think developing countries get enough credit for, if I understand correctly, actually being home to the, the, the largest population of refugees in the world? Um, I think that's a very good question. And, and I think they absolutely do not get enough credit. There are about 68 million displaced people in the world today. About 25 million of those 68 million are refugees. And of those 25 million refugees, about a third of them are in Africa. So there are people who left one African country and found refuge in another African country. 
um, about 11% of those 25 million refugees are in Europe. So we have a situation where Africa is hosting about three times as many refugees as Europe. And, and obviously European countries are much, much richer than African countries. So European countries are hosting fewer refugees with more money and yet characterizing that as a crisis and making it seem like they simply can't cope and they're overwhelmed. You rarely, if ever, hear African countries talk about being overwhelmed, publicly at least in the media. Um, there's, there's no media coverage about African countries being overwhelmed. And yet African countries are hosting many more refugees with, with much less money to do so. Um, so yes, I think the, the responsibility of refugee hosting is inequitably distributed, um, and I think the the reactions um, of politicians and the nature of the media coverage um, about that refugee hosting is really not recognizing the very heavy lifting uh, that developing countries are doing. And, and they're, they are not getting uh, the credit that they deserve. So would you like to see a situation where developing countries get the credit and the resources that they deserve and that they need to continuing the work that sort of falls on their shoulders? Or do you think that Western countries, for example, European countries, but also Canada and the United States and elsewhere, should do more, not only in terms of contributing resources through, you know, multilateral and bilateral means, but also in in accepting, in, 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 in taking in more people? I think both. Um, I think developing countries should, should receive more international assistance to help them cope with the financial responsibility of hosting refugees. And I also think that developed countries should take in more people. So I think both things are required. Uh, if we're gonna have real equitable responsibility sharing distributed fairly across the globe, um, we, we need both those things. Right now, responsibility for refugee hosting is a function of geography and nothing else. The countries most proximate to the the countries that produce the most refugees are the ones hosting uh, the most refugees. And it's simply not fair for, I mean, the, the world's not fair. We all know that. So, so, so I say it's simply not fair for lack of a better word, but, um, but it's not fair that refugee, refugee hosting is, is just an accident of geography. It has to be by design. And in fact, the international community is currently under the leadership of UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, is currently working, working towards a more equitable responsibility sharing regime uh, for refugee hosting. But anything the UN does ultimately has to be approved by its member states, right? Yes, it's all by consent. Right. So how likely is it for, due to political considerations and others domestically, how likely is it that Western countries are ultimately ever going to be in a position where either they're forced somehow or ultimately just do pull their weight, both in terms of contribution of resources and in terms of their responsibility to host and to protect? Well, the international community has agreed to this process of negotiation towards what's called the Global Compact on Refugees. That that much is is uh, is a given. It's uh, they've agreed to engage in the, in this negotiation, and the negotiations are ongoing. That's been going on since um, since 2016. So certainly they've recognized the problem and they've consented to being part of a discussion that will produce um, a solution. 
that solution is not going to be not going to be binding. They're not they're not negotiating towards the adoption of a treaty, which would have binding obligations for all the member states. They're adopting they're they're negotiating towards the adoption of a, what's called a global compact. So it's an agreement, but it's a non-binding agreement. So, so can you forgive people who look at that cynically and say, well, it's sort of, you know, yes, it's going to be another piece of it's going to be another piece of the treaty puzzle or or or, or another 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 piece of documentation. But what will it really do if it's not binding, especially with the you know, the, the we see I mean, I certainly don't remember in my lifetime um, hearing or sensing such hostility in, in so many different places, um, in so many Western countries, to refugees, to the idea of of either contributing in one way or the other or hosting. I mean, it seems, I think there's a lot for very, very large segments of the population for whom that is completely off the table or, or non-negotiable. non-negotiable. I think your word hostility was a really good one because they really are, it's not just people are in disagreement, they really are, they are really hostile to the idea and in some cases to the individuals themselves. So how do you, how do you reconcile the the kind of the the international um, the international objectives that that states and through them their politicians um, are trying to meet while accepting the fact that in 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 the vast majority of the cases the the domestic political agendas to who most politicians and leaders are beholden are is 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 very much against um, assisting refugees. I think you're pointing out kind of two competing competing trends. Uh, there is a, a point of convergence where they meet, and that's prevention. Um, so yes, uh, publics are are uh, you know not like I said not all, but a segment of the public is indeed hostile to refugees, um, and uh, of course politicians are concerned with being reelected and therefore they want to respond uh, to the the concerns of of their constituents um one one thing that states in the developed world are now doing and, and that developing countries as well are now doing is focusing on prevention um, and that's a way to respond to public hostility about refugees while also seeking to ameliorate uh, the, the quote-unquote refugee crisis. Um, so you mean you mean trying to address the problems with creating flight in the first place? Yeah, root causes. So, you know, root cause problem solving and, and, and trying to invest in the countries that are producing refugees um, to, to create conditions of stability so that people won't have to flee. If, if you look at the, the um, major refugee producing countries in the world today, they are countries racked by conflict. South Sudan, Syria, Afghanistan, Eritrea, Iraq, places places with real, real pervasive conflict, um, which 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 are which which are also major long term problems. Right, right. Um, so they're not going to surely they have to be addressed absolutely, but it, that addressing those root causes. Um, is not in any way, I mean, uh, you're the expert, but it's not in any way, and at least the way I can see it, going to address kind of going to address the flow of refugees in the short or even medium term. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a longer term approach, but it's something that's very important and that has to be happening in parallel. Um, it, it, we can't just respond to refugees without also responding to the conditions that create refugees. We have to be doing both. Um, and in 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 doing 
in doing prevention work, uh, conflict prevention, post-conflict reconstruction, um, you're, you're kind of responding to, in a way, public concern about refugees by, by g- getting to the root of the problem um, and, and finding a long-term solution. But in the interim, in the interim, while we wait for that long-term solution and while that long-term solution is negotiated um, and deliberated, what do you what what does one say to um, you know to a, a, a citizen of um, a developed country um, who to a certain degree feels that among many responsibilities held uh, by the state, um, yes, providing assistance and hosting refugees is one, um, but there are many 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 other obligations and considerations that every state has that are in some cases more domestic-oriented, health, education, many other social and pressing problems, how does one negotiate a political discussion in a Western country about the allocation of resources between issues that affect you and I as as citizens, let's say, of a particular country who live here versus um, one part of a government's agenda, which is to meet its international responsibility of assisting and hosting refugees. I mean, it's incredibly expensive. Uh, the resources required are are enormous. Um, you you mentioned you mentioned earlier that you know a refugee processing system exists and operates alongside many other different immigration pathways. So, how, how does one negotiate a political discussion where one wants to advocate for increased spending? Um, for refugees, for individuals who are not citizens of a state, but who need protection and are who in flight? I think it's important not to frame it as an either or. So if you're talking about the most developed countries, the G7 countries, Canada being among them, um, you're talking about the richest countries in the world. I don't think it's it's reasonable to set it up as as an either or because I think we have enough resources in a place like Canada or in any G7 country to go around. We have enough to do both, to both ensure that the population domestically um, has its needs met and also to ensure we fulfill our international obligations um, to to people less fortunate than us. Um, So that's one aspect. Another aspect I think is to remind people of the legal obligation that that countries have taken on in signing up to international commitments. So when a country like Canada signs a treaty like the Refugee Convention or, uh, you know, a human rights convention, they have an obligation to deliver on that commitment. It's a promise and there is a legal obligation to deliver on that promise. So I think that's important as well. If if Canada wants to be a player on the international uh, international stage and be among the countries that makes these commitments. It's not just about making the commitment, it's about going on to deliver uh, on the commitment. Um, So there's that. I also think there's uh, a moral responsibility to assist um, with, I think with privilege comes responsibility and we have great privilege here in Canada. Um, Obviously not everyone does and there are people who are suffering in Canada, of course, Um, but for the most part, we enjoy a very good standard of living here and the delta between us and people in a place like Syria, um, who literally do not, from a day one day to the next, um, 
even have the, the the predictability the and the stability and the security to know that you know a bomb won't drop won't fall somewhere in in their town within the next 24 hours i think the difference between people and living living in those circumstances and us is so huge um that it would be unconscionable uh for us not not to help and not to share uh, some of our privilege with people as fortunate in other countries i actually think it's 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 strange that as a lawyer, what I'm about to say is 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 unusual, and I don't say it often, but it strikes me as you're speaking that for 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 most for the large majority of us who go about our daily lives and who aren't necessarily inter- involved in international affairs and and aware of you know the various legal regimes to which Canada belongs, I almost think if I was facing a group of people on the street and I had to I had to make the case um, for a more genuine a more generous refugee. A hosting system that I'd almost be more persuasive in speaking to people if I was to focus more on the moral argument and the moral responsibility than the legal responsibility. You know, to for me um, and and even as a lawyer, uh, you know, Canada's Canada's you know the legal responsibilities of of a state of of Canada are abstract to me uh, in my everyday life. That's not you know international law obviously is not something that most people especially living in Canada, come into contact with uh, on a daily basis. And I actually think that speaking to people about their individual moral responsibility as Canadians and as, as beneficiaries of our good fortune, that, that that argument is more persuasive in terms of encouraging Canada to be more generous than the legal argument is. And it's also an argument that becomes more persuasive as people are exposed to the conditions in other countries. Um, n- not everyone reads the international section of the Globe and Mail every day. Um, not everyone watches the news. People are busy. Uh, people people have to do their jobs, take care of their families, you know, do household tasks, see their friends, get some exercise. People have really, really busy lives. And it's, it's really easy and totally forgivable that someone could go through, um, you know, day after day after day without ever seeing an image or reading an article about what's going on on the other side of the world. I think if people become aware of the circumstances in other countries, it will go a long, long way towards um, convincing them that the right thing to do is, is to help. A- another point following on from um, the points I was making before about, you know, how would I convince a Canadian that Canada should do more for refugees? A lot of the arguments I was making before were about Canada doing more through international assistance. So like I said, uh, the vast majority of refugees go to a neighboring, neighboring country. For example, they flee Syria and go to Jordan. And when can and so part of what Canada does to help refugees is to give international assistance, to give money to Jordan to help Jer- Jordan bear uh, the financial burden of hosting so many refugees from Syria. Um, but if we're talking about people actually coming to Canada, if we're actually talking about Canada taking in more people, which I think they should. Another really important point to bear in mind is the contributions that refugees make to host societies. When refugees come to Canada, yes, there's an adjustment period. There might be an initial language barrier. People have to get on their feet. But after that initial adjustment period is over, 
Refugees become productive members of our societies. Um, they contribute to the economy and to economic growth. They pay taxes. Uh, they might they might do do jobs that we need you know that we need done here in Canada that Canadians um, might not want to take. Um, they also might do things that enrich our society. Uh, you know they might someone might open a business. Um, making something that that we don't have here something from their country of origin or a restaurant um, that you know contributing a new type of cuisine um, they, they bring diversity they they enrich the fabric of our society so from an economic perspective from a cultural perspective from every perspective refugees enrich enrich the whole society they're not they're not a burden they're an asset do you think there's a fear among the public uh, or among some segments of the public that individuals coming to Canada as refugees who are fleeing um, violent, violent and terrible circumstances of war and destruction, that they may sometimes be incorrectly viewed um, as associated or linked with the negative conditions that they're trying to flee and thus form part of a either a, a xenophobic or prejudicial viewpoint that, that individuals in Western countries may have or may hold. Yeah, I think that probably is a factor, but the law um, the law has already provided for that. So um, the the 1951 Refugee Convention and and also uh, Canada's Immigration and Refugee Protection Act has exclusion clauses. Um, so so there are clauses that outline certain types of people who are undeserving of refugee status and therefore are excluded from or preventing from getting if, uh, prevented from getting it um, so if you've committed uh, committed a, a war crime um, you can't you can't be a refugee you're excluded so the law is the law many people would argue that there have been several examples of individuals who have come to Canada and other countries who were not uh, excluded um, or maybe should have been excluded um, initially, but who, for whatever reason, whose pasts were only discovered many decades later, um, or at least some years later, after they managed to arrive. So I think some people would argue that, or would be concerned that that system, that, that sort of triage system is not strong enough. But there would be many, many more examples that we never even hear about of people who were excluded. So you only hear about the people who who got through the system. You don't hear about the many, many more for whom the system worked. Um, so it's important to bear that in mind. And and no system is perfect. Um, but you know, it's like in you know the criminal law analogy would be it would be better to let a hundred guilty people go free than to execute one innocent person. Do you think, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of dinner table discussion um, today, at least in my life, um, where where we hear where in a, in a, in a, in a listening to people speak uh, and sharing their viewpoints on the issues of refugees and immigrants more generally and immigration more generally, people often resort to uh, a similar anecdote in that. And it you know adapted to every situation, but generally it always goes the it always goes the same way. That most of us, if we look one or two or three generations back, maximum, uh, most of us are in fact either first or second or third generation immigrants. Many of our parents or grandparents fled war or destruction or revolution or political instability. Many of them feared persecution. Many of them had suffered uh, greatly at the hands um, at the hands of 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 others. Why do you think 
that argument isn't enough anymore? Why do you think that that argument, that, 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 that simple story that so many of us share, why don't you think that ends the discussion? Why don't you think individuals in Canada and elsewhere are not immediately ready to extend the same welcome that them, that they or their families received? That's a really, really good question, and it's not something I've thought of before. I guess maybe because a lot of people are selfish, um, and a lot of people think about themselves and their own immediate families first. And if, if, and I think you know, a a lot of people are struggling financially. Um, Generally, we have a high standard of living and and we have a big middle class here in Canada, but even within that middle class and even among people who are living at a high standard, people still worry about um, paying their bills. People still live paycheck to paycheck. And I guess in those circumstances of scarcity, people worry, uh, people put themselves first, which is fair enough. and worry that if we take in a lot of refugees, there'll be less to go around. Um, you know, they think that refugees will take a few years to become productive members of society and may initially at least need to, to you know, receive public assistance. Um, but those attitudes historically seem to have always been present. Um, you know, and, and if anything, we can argue that today that attitude is less pervasive, for example, among civil servants and policymakers and so on and so forth. And that ne- wasn't always necessarily the case. So be that as it may, it's difficult to understand why people, kind, generous, hardworking people can be so difficult, can be so um, sensitive can be so hostile on this one particular issue. At least that's one that that's my experience. Is that is that you know I, I've I've spent now a, a good number of years working as an immigration lawyer. I'm 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 surrounded by people, uh, by colleagues who ask me what it is I do, um, and and I'm surprised by how continuously the reaction is. I wouldn't necessarily say negative, but but is always one that is 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 kind of is is features a great deal of caution. I think in addition to resources another dimension of the problem is Islamophobia. Since September 11th there's been a lot of Islamophobia in North America and in Europe um, and it's only been increasing since September 11th. And a lot of refugees are coming from uh Islamic countries from from Syria, from Iraq. So I think that feeds into it. Um, I think there's xenophobia and specifically Islamophobia, and that's that's not rational, um, and it's not supported by the numbers. You know, if you actually look at statistics about these things, it's just Islamophobia is in no way borne out. It's 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 a prejudice like any other, um, and so it's it's not rational. But I think it is c- coming into people's. It's figuring in people's reactions. Many actors claim that. A significant number of refugees are not fleeing either because they belong to one of the five enumerated groups that you mentioned and are being persecuted as such, or because they they fit in the more broadly described um, definition linked to war and violence in general, but because they're they're victims of of overwhelming grinding poverty, um, and that some people um, make the argument that today. Um, our, our definition of refugee needs to evolve even further to help or to allow people 
to seek economic refuge, that is to seek uh, an opportunity to better themselves and their family somewhere else when it's clear that that opportunity will never be able to be or it will never be afforded to them in their country of origin for reasons that are not necessarily linked to persecution, but reasons that are structural and beyond the control of one individual person. I think it's definitely true that um, people facing severe economic hardship need to be given opportunities um, to earn a living for themselves and their families. Of, Of course, that's true. I don't think the mechanism through which we should do that is the refugee system. Um, that said, there, there are people who who flee grinding pro- poverty and yet are also refugees. Um, so some economic migrants are economic migrants and not refugees. Other economic migrants um, are also refugees because the nature of the poverty they face is not indiscriminate. So similar to the conflict and war example I was talking about a moment ago, um, there are cases where someone experiences severe economic deprivation because of their political opinion, because of their membership of a a particular social group. Um, Systemic discrimination is is a fact. We know there's systemic d- discrimination all over the world, and certain groups experience acute acute poverty because of such systemic discrimination. And when the, those two factors align, we have someone who is both uh, and an, who 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 may flee for economic reasons, but who is a refugee who meets the refugee definition. Um, so sometimes the, the categories overlap, and in fact, when the categories of refugee and economic migrant overlap, I would say it would be incorrect to refer to that person as an economic migrant. They, they are just a refugee. Um, and in other cases, um, the categories are distinct and and someone who is fleeing for economic reasons is is not uh, a refugee. And, and I don't think the solution to their problem lies in the refugee system. The, the integrity of the refugee protection system depends on us preserving it for refugees. That said, it's important to interpret the refugee definition in a way uh, that takes into account all the different forms of persecution uh, that people may experience. And indeed, uh, economic, you know, economic hardship may be a form of persecution. There were many people in Europe and 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 many many politicians and and citizens of of the Czech Republic, Hungary, and Romania who were very angry at the idea of Canada extending refugee status to any of their citizens, saying that by definition as to functioning democracies, they could not be refugee-producing states. Yeah, and we see that kind of concern reflected in refugee law. Um, certain countries have doctrines within the refugee regimes of safe country, of, safe country of origin. So what that doctrine means is that the state will have a list of other countries which are deemed to be safe countries of origin. So if you if you come from that country, um, you can't be a refugee. That has to be a, a rebuttable presumption because you need space within the system to allow people to make their case before a decision maker um, as to why actually in their case, you know, they may be from Hungary or, or the Czech Republic or some other functioning democracy and yet still be a refugee. Um, and And... Really, the the idea of of safe country of origin that has no basis in international refugee law. All domestic refugee systems are 
typically what they are 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 the domestic version of international refugee law. We have an international refugee treaty, the 51 Convention, and individual states transpose or implement that treaty into their domestic systems. The 51 uh, the 51 Convention, the International Refugee Treaty, has no notion of safe country of origin. Um, it so it's. It, the idea of safe country of origin, it's really a, a creature of politics rather than a creature of law. Um, and if states want to include that doctrine in their domestic refugee systems, fine, but it must be rebuttable. There has to be space for individual people to, to make their cases because because there are certainly examples of people from functioning democracies who are nevertheless refugees. You have to remember, to, to be a refugee... Um, Either the state is persecuting you or, or or you have a fear of the state persecuting you or you have a fear of a non-state actor persecuting you and the state is unwilling or unable to protect you from that persecution. So it, it kind of, it was almost presupposed in your question that the state was the agent of persecution, but that need not be the case. In refugee law, the agent of persecution can be a non-state actor, like, a, for example, a criminal gang, um, the mafia, for example. You can become a refugee if the state is unable or unwilling to protect you from that non-state agent of persecution. So, to, so I, you know, I could think of many plausible examples where a functioning democracy would nevertheless be you know, it may not be the agent of persecution, but it may may well be unable to protect someone from persecution emanating for a non-state actor. So we need to make sure that refugee systems have space within them um, to allow people from from every country to make a refugee claim. As someone who's 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 lived in many different countries around the world and and spent time in Africa and spent time um, in refugee camps, how would you? compare to the best that, you know, having, having, you know, not lived these experiences, but how would you compare the experience of one refugee who is among millions from a developing country uh, who's been affected by war or, or famine or disaster, so sort of someone as we, who we more, um, you know, typically associate as being a refugee versus an individual who is seeking refugee status but comes from perhaps a country like some of the ones that we mentioned, or a Western state um, that is not seen as a country traditionally uh, a source for refugees, how would you characterize their, their, their very different battles of those two individuals? Individuals who are coming uh, among, as one among millions versus an individual who's really fighting uh, on their own um, to have uh, you know, a more particular set of circumstances recognized. At the end of the day, I think the two experiences are not that different because an individual always experiences their own life individually. And the fact that they might be one among many similarly situated people won't make a whole lot of difference in their own individual life. I think the experience of having having no choice but to leave your home and your country and the place that you're familiar with and that you belong and where you have friends or family. I think regardless of whether you flee with a thousand people or just with your husband or wife, for example, I think there's really very little difference for how uh, one would experience that rupture and that dislocation. Um, so I think 
Yeah, I, I mean, and, and and equally the the challenges of integrating, um, the challenges of making a, a refugee claim, navigating that system, and then if if one's refugee status is recognized, of integrating into a new society where there may be language barriers, uh, where you may not be able to practice your profession because your qualifications are not recognized. I think those those challenges um, would be pretty similar regardless of. of whether you were fleeing a war that 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 displaced thousands of people or whether you had a highly individualized case. Dr. Marina Sharp, thank you very much.